2016 study from uh, Würzburg University in Germany. They uh, compared the cries of 30 babies from France with 30 babies from Germany. They a thousand cries from each group. And what they discovered was captivating. They discovered that the babies from France tend to cry from a low intonation to a high intonation, something like, wah. And the babies from Germany tended to cry from a high intonation to a low intonation, something like, eh. And then they compared those intonations with the mother's vocal patterns and discovered that in each group, the babies mimic the intonations of their mothers. The baby in the womb listening to the bones, the ear to the rail of the mom's train of sorrow and gladness, and then when the baby emerges from the womb, mimics the voice of its mom. When I think of that, uh, I think it's a metaphor for prayer. We spend our lives trying to listen to a voice that sounds somewhat familiar, but often far. That uh, I'm convinced most everyone who's ever lived in the history of the world has tried to pray. Even if that prayer is just a help me to a void on the off chance that someone's there to hear. I'm convinced there's people in the world who have prayed most every day of their lives, and at some moments, they've been able to have an experience of God's presence invade their life where they already feel as if they know something about what eternity might be like because of the beauty and grace that's resonating in their presence from His presence. However, I think most days, most of our experience is somewhere far in the middle, and we struggle with prayer. That's why one of the reasons Jesus came was to teach us, as his disciples said, to pray. What's interesting is if you look at the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one time he gives a pattern and says, here are the hooks to hang the words on. The Lord's Prayer, we know it well. I'm guessing most of us could recite it together. One time. More often, Jesus, when he taught about prayer, told stories. He said to, to be like a widow who's been wronged and show up at the courthouse every day until you get justice. Or you have out-of-town companies stop by. Don't worry about waking up your neighbors to get help with food. Wake them up even if it's three in the morning. He values this kind of shameless audacity. He wants us to pray like a child who will not be denied. What's come to mean more to me in my own journey with Jesus over the years is not only the model and not only the stories, but the fact that Jesus, think about this, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, the most connected human being to the Father who's ever lived, what's come to mean the most to me is that Jesus prayed. 
Jesus prayed. The Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament, in large part because when Jesus prayed, he prayed the Psalms. From the temptations in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry to the very last words on the cross when he prayed Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prayed the Psalms. Which is why at Waterstone, most every year, we take a turn into the Psalms so that we can re-envision and reinvigorate our own prayer journeys. And this year, for the next six weeks, we're taking a turn into what are called the, the, the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. Hallel, say it together with me, Hallel, say it again. You've just spoken Hebrew. That's the Hebrew word for praise. Have you heard of the word hallelujah? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We are going to learn how to relearn, let's say, how to praise the Lord from these psalms. What's unique about these psalms is they're called the Hallel Psalms. Often in the commentaries, you'll see them referred to as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. And the reason is because each one of them alludes to the great high and holy days of the Passover, the greatest event in the First Testament, their salvation event. Each one of these songs celebrate how God delivered Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. So they're called the Egyptian praise songs. What I also find really moving about these songs, and as you read them in the next weeks, hold on to this, that these songs still today by practicing Jews are sung on the eighth day, the last meal of Passover. Psalms 113 and 114 are sung before the supper, and Psalms 115 through 118 are sung after the supper. And when in the Gospels we read that on the Last Supper, when Jesus celebrated Passover, just before he went to the Mount of Olives, the text says they sang a hymn and then went out. What they were singing were these songs. I want you to remember that the last songs Jesus sang were these. That gives them a gravity. Prayer is relevant in our culture. Often if I'm sharing the faith, trying to share the faith with someone, I'll, I'll try to work prayer in there. Like, I, I have this pattern I like to do, if you've been out to lunch with me, where I like to ask the, way, the, the server, hey, uh, we always stop and give thanks for our food. Is there anything I can pray for you about when we give thanks for the meal? And you get all kinds of responses, and most people are, like, shocked. And then I make sure I give them a big tip to recover <laughs> from the shock. But I, what I find more and more in our secular culture is that prayer's a way in. It's relevant. Why? Because what is prayer? Prayer is a connection with someone, something, who's bigger, transcendent, more than what I am. Now, again, many people in our culture are a growing number, don't believe there's anything out there. But yet, 
prayer is an experience that can still kind of unsettle people and, and, and woo people uh, to, to even ask the question, is there more? Um, our culture, so secular, I mean, I think most feelings in, in our culture are thought to be nothing more than chemical processes. But what's interesting about our culture is as we become more secular, the longing continues to be deeper and deeper in our culture. I was reminded a few years ago, I did some research on the Voyager 1 journey that was going out, sent out into space and with the hopes that if we ran into alien life, we'd be able to show them something of what humankind is like. You might remember on the Voyager, they put what's called the golden record on there, which was the top 50 human songs. The last song in the place of final stress is Beethoven's Opus 130. Luke's just going to play a few seconds of that piece. Here's the song. Beethoven was writing the original score, he wrote in the margin of this song the German word Sehnsucht, which means longing. To be human is to be longing. I can't prove to you the existence of God. What I can say to you is that God, if He's there, if He's real, he, he wants to be known. And one of the ways we can know God is by praying to Him. Jeremiah, the prophet, he once said, You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God puts himself on the line there. In other words, I dare you to try it. You will Now, it's got to be authentic, right? It's got to be real. It can't be like one Hollywood director once said, well, God, if you would only give me a sign like a large deposit in a Swiss bank account in my name. It can't be that. It can't be for what you want. But if you really want to know God, seek him in prayer. And so Jesus came to give us that connection and that opportunity. So with him, we will in these next weeks pray the Hallel. It begins, first word, Hallel. Let's have a word about praising, shall we? What does it mean to praise? First, I want you to see it occurs five times in the first three verses, right? I won't read these again, but just notice, hello, 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 hello. Praise is the first word of prayer. What does it mean to praise? Well, I looked it up in some Hebrew dictionaries, and I want to give you a composite definition. Camp on some of these words that might resonate with you. Here's what it means to praise. It means to exalt, to cheer. To brag on, 
to commend, to intensify, to boast, to extol, laud, and applaud, usually accompanied with singing or, what's that word? Shouting. Now, especially here at Waterstone, that may not always be our week-to-week praising existence. <laughs> right there. We're, we're a bit introverted as a church. We're going to work on it. However, I do know, especially those of you who are introverts, I've seen you worship. If you take the Hillel from one religious context to another context, a phenomenon we know as, quote-unquote, sports fan, I've seen you worship this way. In fact, uh, the psychologists have come up with a, a uh, social identity theory. It's called Berg, basking in reflected glory. You've all experienced it if you love sports. What it means that if your team wins, woo! If your team loses, well, there's an expression for that too, corfing, cutting off reflected failure. (laughs) They've done studies actually. Six university campuses, if the team wins that Monday after the weekend, almost 80% of students in some campuses will have university attire on. And they'll use the word we when they talk about the victory as if they really had anything to do with it. Basking in reflected glory. Let's take it out of the sports context and put it into the church context. And this is what God desires when he says, praise the Lord. He wants you to be a sports fan for Jesus. Now, I think it's a fair question for you to ask, why? I mean, imagine what weekends look like to God. All the time, money, effort put into worship to do this. What's that about? Doesn't God know how great he is? Why do we have to tell him again and again? Well, no one's answered that question better in our lifetimes than the great C.S. Lewis, who in his book Reflections on the Psalms talked about the quote-unquote undeniable logic of worship. Come with me on this for a minute. Let's take a painting. What does it mean when we look at a painting and we're captured by it and drawn in and and have to say something? What does it mean when we say, wow, that deserves an audience? What it means is that it would be appropriate for us to heap words of praise on that piece of work. It would be appropriate and right for us to heap words of thankfulness upon the author and and painter. It would be wrong to stand there and say nothing. We would be losers at having let an opportunity to, to praise something that deserves it pass. And not only that, that experience of enjoyment of something glorious, it's not complete until we respond, until we tell someone. What's the glory of a good joke? When you repeat it. What's the glory of political perturbations that we all experience in the politics? It's when you have a beer and talk it over with someone. What's the, the, the glory of a great meal? When you recommend the restaurant. The Glory demands a response, and the enjoyment of the glory is not complete until it's responded to. Step two, we're wired to respond. Because we're made in God's image, 
We have a capacity to absorb beauty and absorb spectacularness. And we can say, wow. We are wired for wow. Our dog next to us, not so much. But when we're out and we see either the fall colors or smell those sweet plum bushes on the trail in the spring, oh my goodness, we're wired for wow. I'll never forget taking our family to um, the, the Monet exposition that came through Denver in 2019. How many of you saw the Monet? Yeah. I'll give you fair warning. If you ever invite me to go on something like with you, and I hope you do, you need to know that I read every word of every sign on every painting. So my family had been waiting for me for a half hour. They're used to it after all these years. But uh, I was at the last painting, which is the water lilies. And it was a huge crowd. And it's one of those times when you had to wait for people to move and you could move into their spot. I'll never forget waiting to move into the spot where I was right in front of this painting. And a guy makes eye contact with me whose spot I was going to take, and he says, I wish I was on that bridge. What is that? My first thought, that's worship. That's worship. Wired for wow. Glory demands a response. We're wired for that response. And thirdly, the greater the object of praise, the greater the delight will be. What's the object of praise for believers? What's the object of praise in this psalm? Three times it says, let the name of the Lord be praised. The name of the Lord. And five times the name of the Lord is given. The all capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, the Lord, His given name. I am that I am. The name that describes Him as the ultimate majestic being, the source of life. The object of our praise is the Lord, His name, which means that the joy in this room week after week as we say the name of the Lord should be huge. So I want to get to that in just a moment. I want to talk about why praise is demanded. I want to talk about His greatness and His goodness. But first, just a little application for us. I would actually like us to think for one minute and take a Berg test, basking in reflected glory. I want you to evaluate your praise skills. I want you to look at your heart and see how you're praising. Especially as we regather as a church, more and more people coming back, we're getting closer to hopefully fuller and fuller capacity. It's a good time for us to evaluate our praise skills. So first thing, would you say your life with God often finds you basking in the glory of God? In other words, is praise something you practice the rest of the week, early in the morning, late in, however you build in your prayer routines, is praise something you practice? Maybe for you it's getting out and walking, hiking, enjoying this beautiful state. With How's your praise component? Do you take the time to say, wow? Second question, upon leaving this room, here's the question we should leave with every week, right? Here's the Berg test. Upon leaving this room, can you say, I gave God everything? Heart committed, mind alive, voice hoarse. Now I know and I want to respect there's great differences in personality and wiring and introvert and extrovert and all that. But whatever it looks like for you 
to give God praise. I'm asking, how hard are you working at it? Because if God is the greatest object to ever receive praise, man, we should work up a sweat at the very least. How you doing? I'm even suggesting it takes some preparation time. Like when you're driving here, like when you're walking in. It's that last huddle you put your hand in and you say, okay, let's go, ready. I mean, can I say it this way? I'm not trying to, I mean, this is just a great opportunity for us to like rethink our praise. Let me ask it this way. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> we just really need to work at praise. Are you with me? I could use some of those Philobeta amens, by the way, as we preach here. <laughs> Dang it, it was so good what I was going to say, too. Everything begins with praise. And we need to room, leave the room feeling, God, I gave you praise today. I gave you praise. All right, it begins there. Now, the question is, what about God demands this kind of effort? What about God encourages our praise? It begins, verses 2 through 5, in that He is great. He is exalted. That word exalted means to be at the top of a mountain. It means to be above all things where, you know, at the top you can look down. One of the reasons Beerstad's one of my favorite 14ers is when you, it's one of the easiest actually, and it's close to Denver. But one of the cool things about Beerstad is when you get to the top, you can see the parking lot from the top. That's rare on Colorado 14ers. And it's interesting, when you start at the parking lot, everything's life-size, right? It's big as you are. When you get to the top of 14er and look down in the parking lot, it's a pixel. What praise means is to put God on top of the mountain and take the appropriate smallness that you are. God's at the top. He is over all things. In fact, I love the way the psalmist works it. He uses what we call merisms. He says, now and forever, which means all of time, God's at the top. He says, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, which means every place, God's at the top. And then he says, over all nations, that is over every human power, every heavenly power, God's at the top. Think of it this way. Jan and Larry are human beings. Fido is a dog. Tarantula is a spider. Oak is a tree. Milky Way is a galaxy. Uh, Satan is a demon. Uh, Gabriel and Michael are the archangels. But only God is God. Therefore, only God is just. Only God is holy. Only God is pure. Only God is love. Only God is all-knowing. Only God is almighty. Only God is all-present. Only God is God. Which is why Jesus said, first thing, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name. There is no other name because there's no other person who is God? 
<laughs> Amen. Second word, he's exalted and his glory is above the heavens. Now in the ancient world, they studied space, but what they believed is that space was about a 60 mile sky. Radius 30 miles that way, 30 miles that way, that's your sky. Well, we know, thanks to the great people of Lockheed Martin and others, that there's a lot more sky out there, right? We've discovered this thing called the speed of light, which is? Who said that? Is that a Lockheed Martin worker? That's Tim Lancaster. Way to go, Tim. Public schools in Texas. There we go. <laughs> 186,000 miles per second, we're a light year. Do you know that now, if we go to speed of light, we could reach the sun in eight minutes. And we could reach the center of the Milky Way in 33,000 years. And if we went through the Milky Way, which is one of 20 galaxies in a cluster called the local group, I know that's the name, kind of a, they must have been having a bad day, a name, local group. But there's 20 galaxies in the local group. That would take 2 million years, light years, to get through the local group. The local group was part of a larger cluster called the Virgo Cluster, which would take another 200 million years to get through the Virgo Cluster, to get through the known universe that we know, that we can see now on either side. 20 billion years. And God's glory is above it all. Wow. His glory, His weight, God throwing His weight around through the things that He's made. It's huge. And the third word I like from Psalm 13, which is why we praise God, is because it says He's enthroned. That's the word that describes his sovereignty. That's because Jesus, Father, Spirit, have made everything. And they uphold everything by the power of Jesus' word. And they direct all things to their intended purposes. Because God knows every action and every intention and every possibility, real and unreal. He knows everything and he's working all things including every human destiny to his appointed plan he's sovereign he answers to no one he does what he wants and no one can stay his hand we praise because God is exalted above all. We praise because His glory is the heaviness on the universe in every place. And we praise because He is enthroned. He rules. Whoo! Pray, prayer begins with praise. Hallowed be your name. Why? We get into these seasons of life that are like a puzzle. I'm stealing an illustration from our founding pastor, Nick Lillo. We talked about it this last week. We get into these places, hard places in life, where it feels like life is a puzzle, and there's this big hole in it, and we just don't know 
what to put there, what piece goes there. Or sometimes it feels like we're stuck holding a piece that God gives to us, and we just don't know what to do with it in our life. And so what do we do if there's a hole we can't fix or a piece we don't know where it goes? What do we do? We look at the big picture on the box, right? We look and see, oh, that's what's really going on here in this puzzle. That's the goal. That's where we're all headed. Even though I don't know exactly where this fits and how it works, there's the big picture. That's what praise does. It reminds us, oh, God is exalted. Oh, God is sovereign. Oh, God is glorious. That's the big picture. Even though my life right now, I can't make heads or tails of it, I know he's got even my life in that picture. It's the book of Job, right? His life falls apart. Worst kinds of suffering. Family, health, work, everything pounded. What does God do? First, he does not answer him or tell him why. Second, he says, Job, let me just give you a glimpse of something here. And he shows them mountain goats giving birth on the hillside. He, he shows them, oh, this is where the hail comes from, the hail closet. Oh, this is, this is why I decide if the wind's going to blow from the west or the east. Oh, this is why you know, I made the Leviathan and the behemoth. Job, here's the point. Do you have any idea what it takes to one the universe for one second? Let me show you. And Job steps back and says, Oh, I repent. I repent. I see how huge you are. And again, I put my trust. Even though my life's a wreck, I put my trust in you. We worship God because He's great. But the greatest feature of God is that no one is too small for Him. Nothing is too great. No one is too small. And that's why the rest of the psalm finishes this way. Stay with me for just a minute. He says, through two case studies, what I want to show you is that even though in my massive greatness, who I am as the God like no other God, and the one who stoops. And I look down, and what do I see? At least two kinds of people. I see the poor. From the dust lifts the needy from the ash heap. The word poor is literally the economic poor. It's those who don't have land or assets or money. And thus, the second word, needy, they, because they are dependent, are disdained. That's the shame word for being poor. God says, I look down from my massive greatness, and where are my focus? Where do my eyes go? The poor and the needy. And he uses... <laughs> Quite a metaphor, the ash heap. In ancient cities, every gate, they would have a place right next to the gate where people could bring their trash out, and they would keep it incinerating with cow pies as charcoal, and always people burning trash. And these people are so poor that they're scavenging through the trash to survive. And God says, from my greatness, they've got my attention. I'll lift them from the ash heaps, and I'll make them royalty. Just a quick word here on this. This is historical protocol. This is God's way always in history of what he does. It's why, for instance, he kept his covenant with a group of people called Israel, 400 years of slavery. He uses slaves 
to take down the most powerful culture and civilization in the world at that time, Egypt. He uses slaves to take Egypt down. The leaders that God chooses for his people, we would never choose them from our search firm. Never. Jacob the deceiver, Moses the murderer, David the little shepherd boy, uh, Deborah, a woman who, in a male culture. We would never, ever choose the people to lead us that God chooses. Why? Because he's lifting, always lifting the poor. Why, why the poor? Well, it's not innate. It's not something they earn. It's not because they're poor. It's because of receptivity. It's because the poor know that everything in life is given, not earned. Everything in life depends on God's power, not ours. We middle class, we wealthy people, we struggle more with that, don't we? We live by the mantras, well, if you work hard and dream big, you can do your own self-salvation projects. And you can make it, even with God. <laughs> That's why, folks, the gospel is exploding in places like Latin America, and China, and Africa, and India, among the poor. There are much fewer barriers between self-salvation and God's salvation when you have nothing in the way. So that says really briefly, one really important application for us as a corporate church. This is why we focus on the poor. Not only because it's common good and it's a justice issue, but even more because that's where the gospel is more likely to take root. And so we will continue to focus on the poor. Now, don't misunderstand me. Does God love the middle class and the wealthy? Yes, very much. And he loves your neighbors. And that's why we're doing all these things for our neighbors. But we are also going to keep providing resources and effort to places where the gospel is exploding. Because that's good stewardship of our resources. So, God lifts out of the ash heap. And the second case study God puts the barren woman in a home, her home. In the ancient culture, barrenness was the chief cause of unhappiness and misery. Why? Because if you were infertile in that culture, it was your fault as a woman. In fact, it was viewed as a divine curse. You must have done something wrong that you're infertile. And because in that culture, part of your job, your mission was not only to produce children to take care of your family, there's no safety net. So you had to produce heirs to take care of you in your elderly years. But even more, you had to produce a generation for the future of your nation. So if you were infertile, you weren't even part of the storyline. It's why the leading cause of divorce in the ancient world was infertility. If you were barren in the ancient world, Walter Brueggemann says, the great Old Testament scholar, take out the word barren and put hopeless. That's what it was to be infertile in the ancient world. And God in his greatness looks down, and where does his attention go? It goes to the barren woman. I also want to say that within our Waterstone congregation, that infertility is a chief cause of unhappiness and misery. 
I read this last week, a description from a woman struggling with infertility of what it's like, Sarah Wilson. The fertile cannot grasp how profound is the cosmic insult in learning that your love cannot bear fruit. That is what love is for. Babies are one of the many fruits that love bears, and yet ours isn't enough. We are a big mistake. We are an abomination in nature. We exist pointlessly because we cannot make more of our own species. We are an abomination according to the charge of Genesis because we cannot be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Our love does not bear fruit. God, nothing is too great for him, but God is great because no one is too small for him. Not the poor and needy, not the barren woman. And so we, with Jesus, as we walk, even through the hardest days of our life, we will sing these songs. And what does it mean to sing this song? If we're poor and needy, blessed are the poor. Jesus said, if we are poor and needy, then we see Jesus coming from the most towering position ever, the 14-year of glory. He emptied himself and he became a baby that needed a diaper change. And he grew up and he walked and he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And when he walked out the gate of Jerusalem trying to carry a cross, He walked past an incinerated pile of trash called Gehenna, which was the Hebrew words for hell. Jesus walked through hell, and he took what we deserved so that he could lift us up, and as it says in Ephesians, sit us in the heavenly realms now with the Prince of Glory. That's good news for the ash heap. And we have good news for the empty children's room in the house of the barren. I wrote this because I wanted to be tender and specific. To the barren, those struggling with infertility, Christianity does not merely admit the tragedy of infertility but willingly honors it. It knows the tragedy of infertility as it knows the tragedy of the cross. To those whose marriages are infertile, drink the cup of mourning to the final drop as you are authorized by Jesus Christ to do no less. But as you weep, Know that you are also leading the church, us, to see that a child will not fully answer the tragedy. Only the Christ child who comes into the world through a virgin birth, who dies on a cross in utter forsakenness, darkness, shame, rejection, praying a psalm, and then is born again on the third day. Only He can meet our procreative sorrows with the satisfaction that our longing soul needs. So you teach us to say again tomorrow, I will 
trust you in this brokenness, in this story, until I see the salvation of the Lord. And my friends, those of you watching online, wherever you're you're tuning in from in this room, that's what Christianity is. Prayer. Christianity is not a bunch of people getting together and moaning about who's president and who's not. Christianity is not about a group wholly huddling to say, you're in, you're out. Christianity is a group of people on their knees being beaten and broken and bashed by life, but so captured by the two words that Jesus gave us to pray that we're on our knees again saying, Our Father. That's what Christianity is. So let's stand and halal together. Let's begin by reading responsively Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you His servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Together, let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, let the name of the Lord to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of His people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. 